This episode, we are joined by Professor of Sociology Eva Iluz, author of a dozen books, including your most recent book, The End of Love, published by Oxford University Press. Thanks for agreeing to talk to Kola Chalutz about society, the left, and the challenges we face. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks very much, Anton. I feel that this is a big moment in history. We could choose one of a couple of paths. Either realize that we are all on this planet together and use this as an opportunity to build society and deepen our connections and mutual responsibility, or alternatively just continue on the destructive path of increased privatization and individualism, where the rich look after the rich, that neoliberalism encourages. Do you see signs that we can actually choose to take the first path? And what can we do as citizens and communities to push us in the right direction? Well, um, I would say that, of course, there are signs that we can choose the first path. Um, that is the path to what you call now greater solidarity. And I would say that more or less the choice ahead of us in economic terms is between the New Deal and the uh, 2008 bailout. Either um, to get out of the economic crisis by creating programs that include all social classes, especially the unemployed, as was done in the New Deal of Roosevelt, or um, bailing out uh, and giving tax uh, advantages to the big corporations in Wall Street, as Donald Trump is actually doing, which will mean probably that it will not uh, trickle down to the more disadvantaged groups. So that's the choice, more or less. What I hear in Europe, or from Europe also, is an uh, increasing awareness that this crisis may be the opportunity to implement a form of green growth. Uh, green growth is a priori opposite, it's an oxymoron because what the green movement is opposing is economic growth without any limit, which is responsible for the massive deterioration of the environment. Green growth is probably going to be the direction chosen by many European nations. That is a growth that um, tries to create or be based on um, green energies and green forms of production. So that for me is an encouraging sign, and I do see many, many signs uh, in that direction. As for the latter part of your question, which is what can we do as citizens and communities to push us in the right direction, I don't have a simple answer. Um, you know, it took many years, maybe 50 years, 40 years for the feminist movement to really gel and take a hold of mentalities and to transform the law and to transform the ways in which we look at men and women's relationships. It may take that long uh, also in this case, although crisis may accelerate very much this process. What we need to do, I think, is um, and again, I think the feminist movement should be a model. We should 
uh, combine theory and practice uh, consistently as feminism has done. Feminism was taught in universities and thereby changed consciousness and was able to spread to many uh, groups of the population. And it also was a practice. Um, So I think this is what should be done. An article that you wrote in Haaretz last year about the search for truth really sticks with me. You wrote there that, quote, the ability to think is key to democracy. Only the quest for truth obliges one to think, to argue, to justify oneself, to weigh evidence, to doubt, to revise one's judgment, unquote. You talk about postmodernism, about advertisers and politicians such as Bibi and Trump and the proliferation of fake news, which not only blurs the line between truth and lies to serve a political agenda, but the logical conclusion being the demonization of the very idea of truth itself. Why do people so easily go along with a perversion of truth? So I like this um, survey that was done by the Ipsos and Axios, and they asked, I think, a sample of more than 1,000 people if they thought uh, that the amount of reported death uh, was accurate. Uh, In other words, I think the question was, do you believe the number of Americans dying from COVID-19 is more, is less, or about the same as the reported number reported in the media? And most of the people polled divided themselves like this. Two-thirds, nearly two-thirds of Democrats answered that it's actually higher, and uh, 40% of Republicans answered that it's lower, and only one-third of all those polled believed the count. In other words, it means that a very deep partisanship has completely transformed the collective ability to trust institutional sources and agree on science and facts. So I think that's one of the uh, responses to your question. And it is a response because um, people will prefer to pervert truth uh, than suspend or put into question a belief that is very uh, important to them. But I wouldn't want to say, though, that Democrats and Republicans, for example, are the same, because I think that the widespread suspicion, derision of science exists um, mostly among Republicans. So I think there has been, in the last 20, 30 years, a radicalization of the right. Uh, This is true in many places in the world. This is particularly true in America. This radicalization, this ideological radicalization of the right, went hand in hand with a suspicion for facts and for uh, science 
which has had the result of polarizing the political arena and making it thereby more and more a question of belief rather than a question of uh, displaying and uh, sharing some uh, rational argument as it was supposed to be in the classical democratic theory. This is fascinating because I did my own extremely rigorous research on this very question by posting on Facebook and seeing what happened, but only in the UK and not the US. I posted on Facebook and asked my mates in England to respond. I asked two questions. One, is the situation in the UK vis-a-vis the virus bad or not? And I asked people to use the number of deaths as a yardstick. And two, has Boris Johnson and his government's response been good or bad? My assumption was that if they were left-leaning, they would answer both questions in the negative. And if they were a Tory voter, they would be more likely to be more forgiving and see the cup half full. The results of my vigorous research were interesting. Firstly, my hypothesis generally stood up to scrutiny and opinions generally fell along political lines. However, and I don't know if this is something about how the British specifically relate to leaders and leadership, or maybe because it's a defence mechanism that they want to still believe that everything is okay, but there are a significant number of people from both sides of the political spectrum, albeit more from the right, that are willing to give the leaders the benefit of the doubt purely because they are the elected leaders and therefore must understand the situation better than we do, the masses. So while I accept your thesis that the right is more prone to this phenomenon, I think we're in a huge minority of those that are willing to call out our leaders when they make bad choices. Why? I mean, I had responses to my post that said that I'm trying to stir up political conflict and the virus is a human issue and I'm staining some sort of we're all in this together nonsense by turning it into a political one. Why are less and less people willing to call their leaders out? Is this what a slide to fascism looks like? And I'm not sure there is one response to your question. I do think people think they call their leaders out when they think they should. But first, there is a general crisis of trust in institutions and leaders. And it has become quite widespread, I would say, in the Western world, that political leadership is corrupt. And this actually is the source, I think, of a massive crisis of democratic institutions because people don't believe in leaders and institutions. And this, I think, is true all over the political spectrum. So in a way, it's as if they don't even bother. That's why political apathy is also an outcome of this. And second, I think that, at least in Israel, the uh, erosion of democratic values and norms has been uh, slow, has been, and also has been undertaken under the aegis of security. So security tops everything. Security is the ultimate motive for any suspension of civil rights or democratic norms. Security in Israel is so pervasive that people willingly accept, I think, 
that their leaders will suspend their own freedom for their security. The corona crisis management was a very good example of that. I think most Israelis were very willing and even enthusiastic about the suspension of their own freedom and the um, Shabak surveillance um, as long as this guaranteed their own security. So I think security is a very, very powerful corrosive of democratic values. Interesting you say security because people are trading one type of security for another. They are under the illusion that their physical security is being protected against the external enemy. But at the same time, their economic security is being trampled on. Is it simply fear that drives people to support leaders that don't have their interests at heart? Or is there something else at play here? Fear is not at all the only reason why people will put up with their leaders. Um, love is very much also a consideration to take into account. And when I say love, I mean love for a um, character, for a leader. Uh, we should not underestimate the real love that people can feel or could feel towards somebody like uh, the Gaulle or uh, Hitler or um, Netanyahu. Um, strong leaders elicit the love of the citizens whether these leaders are strong for a good democratic cause or for fascist or populist causes. And it's interesting to know that the more you are downtrodden, the less likely you are to succeed, and the more likely you are to have these kind of feelings of love, both for the leaders and for the nation, that the leader embodies. Um, and so I, I'm thinking of a research done by, I think his name is Francesco, a broken patriotic. And in this research, he shows that eight, from 80 to 90%, which is a very high number of the working classes, some of uh, which are, are very far from having made it and actually struggle. So a very high percentage of these people are very patriotic and love their nations, their nation. So the, the feeling of love for your nation seems to be almost the last thing that uh, remains for many people who have lost in the social struggle for advancement. So love is another feeling that is very much up at play, I think, in the political arena. I heard you talk about an interesting alliance that the Trump era has cultivated. Workers, religious traditionalists and free marketers. In Britain, Corbyn, for a while, managed to form alliances between the far left, the working classes, Islamic fundamentalists that hold less than progressive views on women and homosexuals, and supporters of dubious regimes not renowned for supporting human rights. Why are people so ready to make these alliances whilst overlooking the big ideological differences that exist between them? 
I'm not sure I know exactly the answer. You're right that on many issues, the extreme left and the extreme right seem to strangely meet. For example, anti-vaccine movement. Uh, you can find it both on the extreme left and the extreme right side of the map. Or during the coronavirus crisis, people in favor for reopening the economy are to be found both on the extreme left and the extreme right. At least that's true in the U.S. But to get to your question, I think that because of the polarization, the increasing polarization of politics, and that's a movement that is very striking in the United States, but that is certainly true in many places in the world. And by polarization, I mean that a political opinion has become a part of a total value system. It has become a part of a moral worldview, and therefore people are far less willing to compromise about it, to change it, and they are much more likely to view the person belonging to the other party, to the other side, as an enemy that threatens the core of their moral beliefs. So I think because of that, their politics is much more about saying no or rejecting things than about having clear ideological platforms. I mean, look at Gantz before he joined Netanyahu. His uh, platform was virtually completely empty. He was simply about uh, rejecting Netanyahu. And I think a great deal of politics is looks like that. It's empty ideologically. And it's empty ideologically also because I think citizens, voters, are increasingly wary of it. And do not really believe candidates on their promises. So the candidate that manages to convince them most effectively that he stands to attack things that they dislike profoundly is the one they are most likely to endorse. I think Trump was that kind of candidate. Gantz was that kind of candidate as well. Most men or a lot of men have been downsized by uh, corporations. And when others have lost their job due to globalization and delocalization of work, I think what happens is that many of them are going to project their subsequent frustration on the immediate groups which they think have benefited from something where when they have lost something. And these groups are women, minority and minorities. And if you add to this the fact that these groups seem to have vocal representatives among the elites, the intellectual elites, so I think it sets up the perfect landscape for 
explaining this politics of rejection, a politics based on, it has been called a politics of resentment, but I really think it combines many things such as uh, uh, rage and shame and envy. So I think a lot of the new politics is based on this double movement of having been let down, living in conditions of high uncertainty, economic uncertainty on the one hand, and having the illusion or impression that other groups have benefited of uh, wealth or resources that are, are out there and that you have been deprived of, and that these groups are on the top, the ones who are the most uh, represented. So, uh, you know, I'm not the first one at all to say this. It's not my own invention, but I think it does have uh, a great deal of planetary power. And it is, in the analysis of ideology, it's called displacement. It's simply a displacement. Uh, where you are um, unable or unwilling to analyze the real culprit and you displace it on someone else or another group. It's very familiar uh, in history. I think the rise in anti-Semitism also fits into this model that you describe. Do you agree? I'm not sure if... It's like anti-Semitism, first because there was a long history of uh, Christian anti-Semitism that predated modern anti-Semitism. And so in that sense, I don't think there was there the mechanism exactly of uh, scapegoating. Although the anti-Semitism in Germany or Austria uh, in the 19th century was definitely based to a great extent on envy because the Jews had somehow managed to uh, gain tremendous education and to be many professional groups and to acquire uh, wealth sometimes at um, much greater pace and speed than their non-Jews uh, uh, fellow citizens. So I'm not sure it's exactly the same. I think that what I was referring to is due to the disconnect between one's social and economic stagnation and sometimes even regression and the perception that some groups are benefiting or are making it or um, are able to get forward. And... In a way, it is true that women have objectively gained the workforce and started to gain some modest positions of power in the workforce. At the same time that um, globalization was dispossessing uh, men, working class men, from um, from their jobs. Um, it is a historical coincidence. There is, of course, no causal relationship. But the um, disadvantaged groups, those who were left behind, came to view it uh, in a causal fashion. 
um, thinking that if they saw minorities who were invisible uh, get uh, forward, and if they saw themselves uh, regressing, so they made the connection and thought that one was the cause of the other, which would suggest that it can be problematic to democratize certain groups when others are economically regressing. And I think in the 70s and 80s, and even a bit uh, 90s, we could ride on these waves of democratization because the economy was following. Once the economy stopped following, once you had the, this disconnect between economy and democratization, that is when I think you created a great deal of uh, discontent. And that's where, uh, when working class men started moving in droves to the far right. If I understand you correctly, you are saying that we need to think twice about empowering minority groups when there was a downturn in the economy, since it could be used against them by white men? No, I'm saying the opposite, that you should not disempower groups. And I think globalization, which um, many of the liberal were happy to embrace, in which corresponded in very much to their worldview, uh, globalization meant the disempowerment and the socioeconomic downturn of the working classes. Now the working classes are coming back to the fore of our consciousness. But let's not forget that the left for at least 20, 30 years has dealt uh, mostly with minorities. And the result has been that a huge chasm has emerged between, on the one hand, the working class and the left. But don't forget that traditionally the left was supposed to represent the working class. But since the left started representing more and more minorities, it was also unable to forge alliances between minorities and the working classes. It might now be more possible. Perhaps a Labour Party of the kind that Corbyn um, tried to build uh, unsuccessfully. Perhaps Alejandra Ocasio-Cortez AOC uh, has just such kind of alliances in mind. But for me, it is obvious that we have forgotten about the working classes and the working classes is coming back to the forefront of politics by being the unhappiest ones and the ones who vote are most likely to vote for extreme right wing or populist parties. So the only thing I'm saying is that we must not and cannot forget the working classes in any politics of emancipation or progress. Okay, I get it now. That was one of the main criticisms of Hillary Clinton in her campaign for president. She was championing minorities and alienating white working class men. 
What conditions do we need for the working classes to see their struggle as not being a contradiction to minorities, but against the systematic inequalities that oppresses both of these groups? I'm not sure I know the answer to this question. It's a question that everybody is asking themselves, and I don't know if somebody came up with a good answer. I think, first of all, it requires from the current left, the so-called progressist left or progressive left, to overcome its aversion to working class white men and to overcome the cultural and value chasm that has taken place um, in order to create more effectively the politics of the vulnerable and to understand that the common ground of the, of the different groups that the left ought to represent and which it has traditionally represented are vulnerable groups. I don't know if it's not feasible. In, uh, I think it was 1969 in Chicago, Fred Hampton created, along with uh, others, something they called the Rainbow Coalition. It was already then, actually, they are the ones who coined the expression. And the uh, Rainbow Coalition had connections or emerged from the Black Panther uh, Party, but it was later joined by the SDS, the Students for Democratic Society, and it um, had a very strong uh, awareness of both working class movement and minorities. Something of that sort will need to uh, emerge. And by the way, I think this is the concept that was later used by the Reverend Jesse Jackson and later on by Barack Obama. So in the US, I think this is the direction to take. It has been done. It can be done. It is a long-term struggle, um, but I think that should be the direction. In Israel, it would mean creating a cadre of Mizrahi and Arab left-wing leadership. It seems far and out of reach, but it's not impossible. I think if we rethink completely the um, nature of the Israeli left, such a rainbow coalition can also be obtained. But again, it can only be a long-term project. Thank you so, so much for your time and insight. I value your analysis and hope that we can succeed in creating those alliances that we crave. Thanks very much, Anton. Cool.